I want to ask that y'all tonight would, would more than anything just listen. I'm not going to have a lot of conversation or discussion. I try more often to mix some of that in, but um, and there may be a part of the teaching tonight that you kind of want to fire back at a little bit. Um, and I would just say if you feel like quick to the draw on that, you'll be proving the point that has rubbed you wrong. Oh, no. So, um, so just listen. Uh, I'll have a few questions in there, but uh, um, I understand that, some, that you, you might have some reaction. That's okay. That's good. Hopefully we'll have a reaction to God's work. So Ephesians 4.29, specifically what we're looking at tonight, and um, just to give a little bit of context for that passage, Paul is talking uh, in Ephesians, specifically in chapter 4, about unity in the body of Christ and, um, and the new life that we have in Christ. Mm-hmm. He goes through both of those things in chapter 4. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, actually, talking about unity, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he goes on, there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity. That's a theme. Um, and he ends that by saying, because we're a unified body, in verse 16, he says we're to build our build ourselves up, build each other up in love to into the head, which is Christ, right? And then he goes on to talk about new life starting in uh, kind of verse 17. So verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here it is, to put off your old self, kind of some of those things you just described, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't be like those people that don't have new life, but be like God in whose likeness you were created. Okay? Unity of the body of Christ and the new life. And he goes on the rest of the book to talk about what that looks like, unity and new life. It's sharing with one another what we have. It's being kind and forgiving and to live in sexual purity and to not get drunk and to submit one to another, all these different things. But I want to put your attention on one of the main highlights and themes of the unity and new life that Paul is presenting. So I'm going to read some excerpts from uh, chapter 4 and 5. Right after he comes out of, here's what, you have new life, put off the old, put on the new, here's what some of that's going to look like. So verse, chapter 4, verse 25 says, therefore, or because of your unity and new life, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
for we are members one of another. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, these things that can come out of our mouths, be put away from you along with all malice. Chapter 5, verse 3, that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And verse 18 of chapter 5, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So hopefully with my emphasis of my italicized words, uh, you see that a highlight of the unity that we have in Christ and the new life that we have in Christ, a highlight of that should be the things that come out of our mouths. Mm. If you want to have something that's significantly different than those who he described as darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of hearts. What's going to be different from that are words. That's a significant thing. Other things too, but our words. If you want to like know what it looks like to live in unity and new life, it's going to involve our words. If you want to work against that, you can do that with your words. So I want to focus on uh, verse 29 of chapter 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. But first, um, I want to look at another passage that many of you are familiar with um, in James chapter 3. So you can turn there if you've got the Bible. James talks about the danger that is the tongue. James 3. Great um, similes and metaphors that James uses here. James chapter 3, verse 2. James says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A horse that weighs a thousand pounds or more, this huge beast that can run like the racing horses, they can run it. I think 40 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour, like these huge, and they're controlled with this little, like five inch or so, and a few ounces of uh, of a metal bit in their mouth, okay, among some other things, but this is what's guiding their movement. It can guide this huge, monstrous being, yeah. So, and so I think James' point is this, A bit is a disproportionately powerful tool to guide the horse. Verse 4, look at the ships also. They are 
Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. The rudder of a ship weighs maybe one-fifth of one percent of the weight of a ship, generally. It's like nothing in comparison to the mass of the ship, right? But with that rudder, the helmsman or the pilot is directing the course of this ginormous tens of thousands of ton thing, this ship, right? So the rudder is a disproportionately powerful tool. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. I think what James is saying is the tongue is a disproportionately powerful tool. And if we can master the control of our tongue or our words that we say, we can control anything, our entire bodies, our lives, if we can control our tongue. That's why it says in verse 2, if you can control what you say, basically, you're perfect, right? Because that's the hardest thing to control. So if you do that, you, you've got it all. The tongue's a disproportionately powerful tool. And so it's something that like, we have to take very special caution with. And so it goes on to talk about that. Like, Not only can it be a useful tool and accomplish something beneficial, like in a horse or in a ship or whatever, a rudder and a bit, uh, but it can cause mass destruction also. Mm. So verse 6, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Mary Beth and I just got back this last weekend from Hume Lake Christian Camps, and on the way there, you're driving through the Sequoias, the Sierra Nevadas, and yeah, it's beautiful, and it, some of you know, like last summer, and, and fall, there was a huge fire there. Um, we drove by it, and it was like so sad because there's just these just eight thousands and thousands of acres of burnt trees, and it's just like decimated. Um, 150,000 acres is the estimate for the total. Um, one of the larger fires in California history. It took a hundred million dollars to put out the fire, like that's what the cost was. Huge. And you know what started it? <laughs> they, they think it was uh, one bolt of lightning strikes no. one tree, and that, you know, fire works, right? Um, and you know, fires like forest fires, they start, they can start from a cigarette butt or a, a campfire, like these little small things, right? Um, and so I think that you all see, like if you think about some, some things that can spread that starts with what comes out of our mouth, gossip or rumors, you all see it spreads like wildfire, right? Okay. That's what we say, that's the expression that we use. Um, especially in this age, the internet age, where it's like I can spark a fire on my computer and it can ignite people on the other side of the world like that, right? So the next part of verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, not dangerous, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow. Verse 7, 
for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Maybe you've been like you've been impressed by a lion tamer or somebody that trains like um, killer whales or whatever it is. And it's like okay, we've learned with different powerful creatures, we tame them, and it's not a new thing. We've been doing that for thousands of years. Verse eight. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So James points out, not only is the tongue a disproportionately, disproportionately powerful tool, but it can be used for massive destruction, right? <laughs> It's a disproportionately powerful tool, and it can be used for massive destruction. And then he talks about, in, in the next three verses, just a great inconsistency we see. Verse 9, with, with it, with our mouths, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. How often have we like sang worship songs and talked in good Christian conversation about how great God is, and later that day we tear down with our words somebody with some derogatory or corrupting comments. Wow. And and it's kind of like like it's interesting how how James puts it. It's it's almost like an attack on God. These people were created in the image That's of God. Right. We praise God and we tear down this person created in the image of God. Just from the same mouth, verse ten says, Come blessing and cursing my brothers. This ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So the tongue is disproportionately powerful tool. It's, it can cause mass destruction, but he's also kind of alluding to the fact that it can also do what it was su supposed to do or what it ought to do, and that's to give praise. It can be used for good. So... This is the tongue, though. It's a, it's a danger. Like it's a, it's tough to control, and it's extremely powerful to use. Right? That's what I want to point out from James. So look back at Ephesians four, twenty-nine. Okay, and we're gonna we'll stick here now. I'm gonna mention a bunch of other verses, but don't turn to them because they're just quick passing. So Ephesians 4.29. So in the context, once again, in the context of unity between the, uh, among the church and the new life that we have, Paul gives a commandment of God in verse 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So begs the question, what is corrupting talk? Right? I don't, or maybe your translation says unwholesome. I don't usually use the word corrupting. It's not a common word in my vocabulary. So what does that mean? Unwholesome, maybe, to think NIV says. Maybe. If you look in like a Greek dictionary, it'll say something that's worthless. Like, don't use worthless words or words that destroy. Um, but maybe the best word, if you look at like the, the kind of root of the word or the etymology, you'll see what the word really kind of at its core means for corrupting is rotten or putrid. Okay? The only other time it's used in scripture is to talk about a diseased 
tree, rotten fruit, or bad fish. Okay? <laughs> Let no rotten talk come out of your mouths. By the way, what do rotten things do? They cause more rottenness, right? One, what do they say? Bad apple spoils the bunch, right? It's true. That actually happens, like as a root, as an apple it is ripening in pear, and as it's ripening, it 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 produces a um, hormone. They write it down called ethylene, which produces more ripening. Yes. And the more ripe it gets, the more ethylene it produces, and till it's rotting and it's more and more ethylene, it's causing everything around it to it, to it's everything's catching on to what's happening to that one. So what are, like what's still what's corrupting a rotten top? Well, I want to give kind of three maybe um, categories to think about it. The first, most obvious, or, or most um, maybe contextually obvious. Uh, type of corrupting talk would be this um, talk that tears down someone. So two verses later, um, verse thirty-one, it describes an attitude that's of, of being against someone. And it uses a bunch of words that are kind of the the attitude that we're not supposed to have that I think produce corrupting talk. Bitterness, it says in verse 31, that envious, just resentful, I've been treated unjustly, somebody's getting what I deserve. Like, we know that feeling, I've felt it before. I think, and you express that bitterness, right? Wrath, it says in verse 31, this overwhelming, this swelling of anger, this hot anger that's just bubbling over. It says anger, that word for anger is just to a desire to give punishment, to pay back. And you can do that with your words, right? I'm going to take out my anger. There's a clamor, like just this noisy outcry. I just have to let it out. Slander, you speak against someone to harm them or injure their reputation. I'd say that includes blasphemy, which we'll talk about in a minute. Malice, this ill will towards someone. It doesn't mention in, in Ephesians, but gossip is mentioned a few times in Scripture. Gossip, like like the times that that's used, that word means to to bubble or to to um, to whisper slander, like gossip. I think those are types of corrupting talk. Um, most of that again coming just right from Paul's context here in Ephesians four. Another one, not just tearing down people, but obscenities. Um, if you look at chapter 5, verse 4, I think I read this. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So obscenities like using vulgar words, especially of a sexual nature, that are, that are out of place, right? That's, I mean, Paul's going on to say, yeah, that's... That, that shouldn't be coming out of our mouth. Um, one that Paul doesn't specifically mention, um, but I, I think is important in not just our church, but in the church and, and a lot of Christians that I'm around, I feel like it's important to say um, that profanity 
this corrupting talk by profanity, you know, we say profanity and cussing and vulgarity, and we, we have different words. Profanity meaning talk that disrespects or profanes God, okay? Um, maybe there's other ways to define it, but you all know if you were in Sunday school growing up, you know the Ten Commandments, and one of them, Exodus 27, says you shall not take the name of your Lord your God in what? Vain. Vain. And it goes on, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, taking the name's Lord in vain, that kind of profanity is, I think John Piper does a good job describing it. He says it's emptying the name, the name of God, emptying his name. I'll read a quote from Piper. Um, about taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's, he says it doesn't just refer to a certain tone of voice or a certain use of the word. It's dealing with God and speaking of God in a way that empties him of his significance. This includes both throwaway words like God or Jesus, as well as speaking about him in trifling and flippant ways. Not just swear ways, but cheap ways. Low and insignificant ways that just treat him like a commodity. Mm -hmm. And when you hear them, you sense that there's no weight to that sentence, no corresponding emotion to that statement, and it seems to have just been gutted. So maybe some other versions. Oh, Lord, Lord, right? I hear that one a lot. Maybe. Remember, don't fire back at me on these, okay? Jeez, jeez. Thank God. Oh, thank God. PTL. Okay, yes, we should pray. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Um, it's not just, it's not those phrases, obviously. It's good to say, oh, Lord, at times, and to thank God and to praise the Lord legitimately. But if we're emptying the value of who God is by using those words as a a cheap commodity. Mm. That's what I think using the name of the Lord in vain is. I, I remember when I was I, in junior high probably, maybe sixth grade, um, I would go over to my friend's house that like I'd walk down the street or close by. We'd play home run derby in the backyard. So we had tennis balls, these yellow hard bats, and we'd try to we'd pitch the ball and try to hit the fence. And uh, Sometimes they would go over the roof of the house and it was a bother because you had to go all the way around. And if it wasn't the neighbor's yard, you couldn't get it, so who cares? But um, anyway, I remember I, I just I remember the details of this, which is really uh, interesting to me because of how significant it was in my life. I remember what I believe was the first time I used, now I, was, I grew up in a Christian home and we we're very careful with our language, maybe overly cautious with the language that we use. Um, maybe not, I'm very thankful for it. But we didn't grow up saying God or Jesus or whatever as a, as in an empty way. And, but this particular day, I remember something happened. I remember exactly where I was standing in the yard of my friend Brett's backyard and like, I was looking over at the roof, like maybe the ball had just gone over the roof. I remember saying, saying, not even to anybody else, but 
just kind of un quietly myself, I was obsessed. I said, God, like as a, you know, as a, I was just angry. So I said, God, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't dressing God. I was just, and I, it was crazy because like, I remember it was like slow motion saying this word. Mm. And I was, it was like, I was thinking as I was saying it, am, am I going to finish Am I going to actually finish it? Am I going to change it to gosh? Or am I going to like finish it and, and actually say God? Because in, in my family, again, I was taught, no, this isn't, this isn't the way that you, you speak about the Lord. And so I didn't get that from my family. I got that from, from a culture who doesn't give any regard to the, the any of the names of God. They don't give regard to who God is at all. And... Um, I think that some of us in this church and just in, I think every church I've been a part of, like need to work on that. I, since then, I don't, I don't use God's name like that often, but I, I use, I talk about God in a flippant way. I'd say that's using his name, like speaking not, not the weight of who God is and, and what I say to people. Um, and I think that's something that we, need to work on. Um, I don't want to reduce them to some convenient kind of explanation that we hear other people say. Now, when I hear non-Christians around me, it's, you know, use profane language against God. It's like, I'm not pointing my finger at them saying, oh, you shouldn't say that. I don't expect, like, they're, they're blaspheming God in a whole lot more than just their words, right? Um, but if we just in this church could, like the psalmist says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Like God and all who he is, you can, you can just wrap up in his name that, that signifies who he is. And, okay, so corrupting or, or rotten talk, using language maybe to tear down or, or spoiling someone's name, even God's name. Which, by the way, if you're trying to spoil people, remember it's only happening because you have, you're rotten to begin with. You're the bad apple that's causing the spoil. I think that's some of the picture that's in it. So, look at verse 29. Like, look, if, look down at it. How much corrupting talk should come out of our mouths? Mm. <coughs> None. 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 No corrupting talk. <laughs> You had lemonade in your mouth. You can't talk corruptly. Is there like a little footnote that says, except when you are playing board games at the Dragoon's house? That's when I want to let it out, right? Is there a little like uh, exception that? Uh, no corrupting talk, except when you're trying to like be real strategic with the gospel and fit in and try to be cool for the sake of the gospel. Like, oh, is there an exception for like you get home at the end of the day? It's been a hard day. You want to talk to your spouse. You want to talk to a close friend because you need somebody to vent to. So then you can have a little bit of corrupting talk. That's not in there. Or like, is it saying just try to have this type of language? No corrupting talk. When like clean it up on Sundays and Wednesday nights when you're hanging out with Christians. But other than that. You don't have to, or when you're hanging out with the pastor, gosh, that happens. I'll be in conversation with a random person, and what do you do? Oh, I'm, I help to lead a church, or I'm a pastor, or whatever. Immediately, like, the language changes, right? Like, oh, you know. 
Um, I better clean it up. But no, no, none. Let, let no corrupting talk to anyone. But Paul doesn't only look at the negative. Like, he, not just what the old self produces, the destructive, um, spoiling words that the old self produces. But just like James, Paul talks about the tongue that as destructive as the tongue can be, it can also be used for something else. And this is beautiful. I love this part. And like, don't stop short. If you're memorizing chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk. Like, don't stop there. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So that's the one that the parents wanted to use on you, right? When you're having bad language or whatever, they're like, the, and they, that's where they stop. But just stopping there is a little bit empty. That's putting off the old, maybe. I'm not going to do those things. But I know a lot of like really polite, respectable, non-Christian families who raise young people that don't talk in a rotten way and have learned, if you can't say something nice, don't say something at all, right? Like we can, anybody can kind of go along with that. Okay, that's... That's good, but Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, you need to bite your tongue and not say those corrupting words. Not just put off old, but he says, you want to put on the new self? It's more than just exercising the self-control. Keep your mouth shut. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but, or on the contrary, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear Instead of using your tongue like the old self wants to, to, to corrupt or spoil or tear down, like, yes, stop doing that, but here's what you need to start doing instead. Use that same mouth now to build up. And so we talked about, like, what corrupting talk is. Well, what's building up? Well, some examples of that. Speaking the truth, he says in verse 25. Several times in this, in this section, he talks about thanksgiving. When I hear people giving thanks, that's, that's building up. In chapter 5, 18 and 19, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's, that's, not, that's not the corrupting works like, uh, words like profanity can be, but addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs like lifting high and, and worshiping God and telling each other of his, his magnificence and his glory. One that Paul doesn't mention specifically here, but encouragement, certainly that's a type of building up, right? Edification. I love that he says, as fits the occasion. Proverbs 15, 23 says, a word in season, how good it is. People, y'all, people need to hear your grace-filled words. They need to hear my grace-filled words. They need to. Um, ESV says we should say these things as fits the occasion. Occasion, everywhere else in Scripture, including the verse before, is translated need. It's the same word. As fits the need or as it is needed, we should use words that build up. So um, the verse before, verse 28, seems to have little relation, except it's actually saying something very similar. It says, let the thief no longer steal, right? That's the old self. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The old self takes, destroys, 
things the new self gives to something in need. In the same, that's the way that Paul is saying our mouth works. The old self wants to use the mouth to destruct, to tear down, to rot. The new self, on the other hand, isn't just not doing that, but it's it's using it to meet need. People need to hear. People need to hear these grace-filled words that we have. We need it. We don't just stop doing the destructive things and let a few other people talk nicely to each other. No, this is something that I think. Paul would call the whole church to. Um, in James, remember the the blessing that can come out of our mouth. It's compared to fresh water mm-hmm. versus salt water, right? Fresh water in the ancient Near East, like in the desert, is needed. It's not just like, oh, it'd be nice to have some fresh. No, we like we're desperate for fresh water, and people around us, like to spiritualize it, like I think James is doing. Like people are so thirsty. And having we as believers need the grace-filled words of others to give us that fresh water, y'all. When I get a a letter or a phone call or I'm in conversation with one of you guys, and you you speak to me as fits the need in, in encouragement or um, yeah, encouragement to me, like. That is, to me, that's like drinking good, fresh water. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that so you'll start encouraging me more, but that's what we do with each other, and that's what we're called to do, and that's what we we need. We need these things, and we're called to speak in that way. He says that it may give grace to those who hear. It's not oftentimes that Scripture talks about... Bless you. Anybody but God, usually it's God's the one that's giving grace, but this is saying this is something that we give in our words to other people, that it gives grace to those who hear. Verse 24 said, we're putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Well, what's the likeness of God? Like, what's the words that God uses? Well, what did they say of Jesus? In Luke 4.22, all spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And were created in God's image and are called also to have words that are filled with grace. We're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and give grace with our words like God does, like Jesus does. Y'all, people are thirsty. We are thirsty for the building up of words that our tongue was created to be used for. So will your words be salt water? Or will your words be fresh water? Will your tongue spark a forest fire that causes destruction? Or will it build up the body of Christ? Will you rot those who are created in God's image? Or will you give God praise? How will you use your words? Like you hear parents go, use your words. Well, how are you going to use your words? There's, just, there's two options. I love it in scripture. So oftentimes black and white. There's the old life. There's the new life. There's some salt water. There's fresh water. There's destroying or tearing down, corrupting words, or there's building up words. Death, life. How will you use your words? I want to um, mention a couple other uh, scriptures that I think are um, relevant to the issue, just to shed a little bit more light on. And to show the seriousness of this, like this is a big 
deal with the words that come out of our mouth. It's our tongue is a small thing and it may seem insignificant compared to everything else we're trying to honor God with in our life, but this is significant. So um, you don't have to turn to these, but Matthew 12, 34 and 35, Jesus says to the Pharisees, how can you speak good when you're evil? So you know this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if your words are rotten, then guess what else is rotten? Heart. Good person out of his good treasure, Jesus says, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So really, what is coming out of your mouth is a heart monitor, mm-hmm. you could say, of what's kind of going on inside. Because eventually it bubbles out somehow. The extent to which your words are corrupting and rotten and unwholesome and spoiled is maybe the extent to which you can kind of gauge what's going on in your heart. That makes me kind of careful to think more about what I'm saying. James 1.26, another relevant verse in the book of James. If anyone thinks he is religious, which James uses as a positive thing, if you think you're religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is, you know what it says? Worthless. You think you're religious but you don't bridle your tongue? but your heart is deceived, that person's religion is worthless. (laughs) Not only is your words rotten that you're using, but the the entire standard of conduct that you're trying to live by is the same. If you can't bridle your tongue. Proverbs 18.21, this this is intense. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. There's uh, the Jewish midrash, like the commentary written, um, says there's um, some rabbi said this the evil tongue slays three. The evil tongue slays three the slanderer, the slandered, and the listeners. Mm-hmm. And I think you could say, on the other hand, the the good tongue, or the life-giving tongue, it gives life to three, to the one giving, the one receiving, and everybody who's listening, to the one giving, it gives life. Proverbs 13, 3 says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, his own life, by guarding my mouth. First Peter 3, 9 says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, I want that, I want to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And it gives Life not only to the one giving it, but it gives life to the receiver. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. And, it, and then it, I'd say it gives it to the listeners as well, right? Like if you've, as I sit around on Sundays sometimes, and there's people encouraging each other and edifying each other, it's like, yes, like I feel that life even if it's not directed to me. It's life-giving. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can either destroy or you can build. So how will you use your words? So I want to end just by like getting real practical, okay? So like what can I say or what should I say and what should I not say? All right. Um, to start, let's just land here. It's always sin to use words to harm someone else. Amen. And it's always sin to use words in a way that devalues God. Okay? 
flippantly treating God. So that to, let's say that to begin with. Well, what about cussing, right? What about these little words that I like to use? Um, some may disagree with me, but I, I think you're on unsupported ground biblically to say that Christians should never say a bad word or an offensive word, okay? You're going to have to rule out some holy scripture um, that if you've got the sense of what the original writers, some of the prophets and Paul, some of the things they say are offensive and probably using some vulgar, for their day, vulgar terms, okay? Um, I read a great article by a guy, some of you know, Preston Sprinkle, um, just a quote from him. He says, the, Yeah, mm-hmm. Preston Sprinkle. Um, he says, The biblical prophets sometimes use offensive language, but not to produce shock for its own sake. Edginess was never the goal, and neither was some vague notion of Christian freedom. God's messengers used vulgar images to shock their religious audience out of complacency. Okay. So you could say they're using that to stir up following God, to, to build up. They're using maybe some extreme language. So if you want to use language in that way, I would say carefully, go for it. But <laughs> I've known a lot, a lot of people, especially young people, 20-somethings, who... At some point, they grew up Christian, and they realize at some point, oh, um, it's not necessarily or inherently wrong to say a societally determined bad word. So then I have the freedom to be loose-lipped and to let it rip, right? It's the same thing with drinking sometimes. I grew up in a church that was very strict, and drinking was basically seen as a sin. And then some people realize, oh, it doesn't, I don't think Scripture necessarily says that to have a drink of alcohol is sin. And then they started, well, we need to have beer at every event, and we always need to meet at the bar, we just need to drink, 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 and let's have a keg at the men's Bible study. And all this it's like, that's not, that's not what the point is. So a Christian with a loose mouth is not a cool Christian. A Christian with with corrupting talk is an immature Christian. I remember in fourth grade, I think, it was fourth grade, I'm revealing all of my dirty secrets. Um, I had a friend, Joel, that we at some point decided that it would be fun to literally whisper in each other's ear a bunch of cuss words. And we would, I don't know, probably didn't even know a ton then, but I would like whisper in his ear, just like shotgun as many cuss words as I can, some of them over and over and over. You know, just like say these aspects of, like you guys are getting the, the real stuff. Um, needless to say, that wasn't mature. That was the opposite of mature, right? <laughs> A Christian with a loose mouth might be cool and hip and relevant and free by the world's standards, but an infant by God's standards. Remember, because it's showing kind of what's in the heart. And just to be real frank, um, there's, a, there's a difference, I would say, and this is, I'm veering a little off the scripture, we'll get back in just a second, but there's a difference between saying, 
I fell straight on my ass versus that guy is such an ass, right? Like there's, that word is being used in a, in a different way. One, may, maybe or maybe not you want to use that word, I mean, based on your context, I don't know if it's a spiritual determination per se. Um, but the other is, um, is rotten. It's being used to its corruptive talk that he's talking about here. This new album that I heard the other day was bitching. Okay, like maybe that that wasn't appropriate in my family, but but whatever. Or that girl, she's a real bitch. There's that it's being used differently, right? Mm -hmm. And there's there's a, a definite difference there when I'm saying those things. So. Um, Here's some questions I'll give you guys just to end to ask. Um, like, should I say this or should I say that based on kind of what we've read? First of all, if you're like wondering, should I say this or these things when this opportunity comes up again or when I catch myself saying, should I say these things? Number one, is your language, is it being used, are the words that you're using being used to build up or to tear down? Sometimes I could go with you and maybe there's neutral. I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That doesn't build anybody up or turn anybody down. So maybe there's words that we use. Okay. But if you're wondering, is this something that's good to use? Is, does it build up or does it tear down? Another way to ask that same question is, am I using this language for them, for their sake, for their good, or am I using it for me? Because it feels good to say these sharp things. Like we all, or I would guess many of us, like to use these sharp four-letter words because it feels good to like get that out, right? Like, and, and usually, or oftentimes, it's, it's because of strong emotion. Like, I'm so angry that I, I just want to say this or do this. It's good for me, but it's not necessarily good for somebody else. Verse 31 again says, bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, let these be put away from you. Y'all, venting or ranting It might feel good, but mm -hmm. depending on what you're saying, I think that that easily qualifies as corrupting talk, okay? Like, I understand maybe you want to process through something in a, if you can do it in a controlled, with another person, a controlled, loving, productive way without gossip, okay, it's going to be tough. But don't talk it out or give yourself a license to talk it out in a way that's rotten, that's dis destroying the people that you're ranting about. It's good. It's not, it's, it's not, oh, you think, well, it's my spouse. Well, I can, I can at least let this, or this friend, they understand me, and so I can just let this out. Well, not if it's corruptive talk. I don't care what your therapist says, we need to get these things out. No, you need to bridle we need to learn to bridle our tongue and um, figure out something productive to do with it. So is your language being used to build up or tear down? That's one question. Is it, is it for them or is, are you just, is it for you? You want to get this out. Is your language out of control? Remember, James says your tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He calls it a fire. Like, you can't let that thing get out of control. Even if you just let out a spark, it could burn down a forest, right? 
is your language out of control? Or are you using your language to build up or tear down? Those, I think, are just some good questions to ask. Now, you might be thinking, like, wait a second, like, right in the heat of the moment, when I'm trying to decide, should I say this or not, I'm really supposed to, like, think think this through and think about the words that are going to come out of my mouth. Like, do I really have to think before I speak? Yeah. Um, for example, James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, when they're just pouring out, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 21.23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 17.27.28, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit, like instead of just speaking quickly, let me, let me have a cool spirit, is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. I love that. Job tells his friends, Job 13.5, Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom, he says. Some of us need to work on this quick reaction that we have to use language that I think qualifies as, as corruptive um, language, especially in our anger. If that's something that you want to work on, can I make a recommendation? Read Proverbs 18 for 30 days straight. And you're going to find out mm -hmm. how to, the importance of how we use our mouth. And maybe after 30 days, it, it begins to sink in. So instead of reactionary speaking, it becomes um, something that we can bridle and choose instead to use our tongue to build up as it was meant to be. So are you using your language, y'all, to build up or tear down? And is your language out of control? And the cool thing is, oh, in here, it's not just like Paul and James, especially Paul here, it's not just a thou shalt not message. It's two parts, right? It's no corrupting talk. Yes, that's in there. But instead of that, talk that use talk that's good for building up. It's not just don't do this, but it's do this. We, as people with new life, have a responsibility to steward this tool of our tongue, to offer grace with our words. I love that we do that commonly at our fellowship meals on Sunday. We, we very intentionally, hopefully, come to those gatherings ready to bless each other, specifically with our words, right, to encourage each other. And hopefully that practice... Um, spills out, so it's not just, well, this is something that I do Sunday, but that, hopefully that's something that spills out into our lives. So don't just be satisfied with, like, the, the self-control to keep your mouth shut. That's good. But, like, work on your heart. And I would say work on your heart by filling your heart and your mind with what's excellent and what's good, right? What's praiseworthy. Which may not be Fox and CNN and Facebook, right? Um, I don't know that that's going to fill you with the desire of edifying talk, right? Um, and really, once you start filling up your mind and your mouth and heart with words that build up, there's not room for those words that tear down. That's the beauty of putting on the new life. It's, it replaces the old life, right? So people are thirsty, y'all, for, for fresh water and grace that we have the ability to give 
with what we say. So how will we use our words? Let me pray. Father, um, you are so uh, magnificent and um, I don't know, just, just thinking about um, profaning your name or, or using who you are flippantly, I, I confess I've done that, I do that, um, and plenty of other corruptive talk that comes out of my mouth. Um, I confess that, God. I think we, others sitting here would agree. Mm-hmm. This is unfortunately uh, common for us. Um, so I, I confess that God for myself um, Lord I ask that by your spirit you would <coughs> convict us that when maybe this week when we're about to say something your, your alive spirit in us would catch us in that word and either shut us up or would turn it to be used to build up, to edify. God, would you give us conviction of what is healthy, good, God-honoring way to speak and what's not? If at times that means using language that is difficult to receive, help us to do that rightly. Um, but Lord, it seems like the great warning here is, is about the danger of the tongue, like we read in James. And so help us, God. It, it says that, that is no man can tame the tongue. And so I, I believe that's something that we cannot accomplish apart from your spirit. So um, Lord, would you catch us in that sin and uh, train us to, uh, to bridle our tongue? And would you show us what it could be to use our tongue to to speak life and to speak grace to people as you have done. And um, yeah, Lord, we need your help so much in this. I mean, just the fact that I have to confess my own words aren't always right just shows I think that my heart isn't always right. And so um, maybe that's even more of the concern. Tonight. So God, would you change us by your spirit? Would you make us more like Jesus um, from our heart to our speech and all the other actions of our body? We need you so desperately because these things want to come out as just our flesh is quick to speak. So help us, God. Help bring this to our minds. Catch us in this sin and that we would repent and choose instead to put on the new self and, um, and speak words that build up as fits the need that we may give grace to those who hear. Thank you. Amen. Amen.